in there? Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. You did it, James. You did it. 99.97% extraction success. Targeting beacons detect no significant trace of amalgam corruption on any previously affected continent. <laughs> I can't believe it. <coughs> A bit, uh, messier than I imagined it would be. But I guess the whole thing was a few months later than I expected. It had time to spread into a lot of juicy folks. Or maybe people just have more blood these days. <laughs> Who's to say? But we'll get it cleaned up. Not quite sure what to do about all those storage tanks that ruptured across the moon's surface. I guess the cover is blown on our secret base up here. Ah, uh, what's that? Peter, we know you're up there. We've been listening to the broadcast. What happened? What did you do? Whose blood is that? Kyle! Hey, man. Long time no... Uh, yeah, well, a bit of an accident with the illustration storage tanks up here. Me and James are trying to get it contained now. Sorry, you and... James? What do you mean? Oh, uh, James is here with me. He's also down there with you. What? Hello again, Kyle. And the good news doesn't stop there. But hey, let's do this in person, huh? I'm disabling the lunar portal security iris now. There we go. Stand clear, making the jump in three, two... Oh, damn. Oh, that hurts so badly. Why didn't I put a cushion up here? Oh, Kyle, my legs. No, don't touch me. I'm fine. Come on, let's, let's get down the ladder. There's no time to waste. What the? Peter? Is that really you under all that gore? <laughs> what am I saying? I mean, who else would? Yes, yes, it's me. It's what's left of me. Glad to see you. Looking well. You've been using the new skin cream. It's nice. Youthful. 
Almost to the bottom. Glad you've made it safely back to Earth, Peter. James! How I miss those sultry tones, you freaking hero! Siphoner of essence, salvation of humanity, conservator of... I don't think you need a fourth title. Come on, walk and talk. What in the... I'm just gonna say it. What in the hell is going on here? We haven't even seen or heard from either of you in well over a year? We thought you were dead, James. I am sorry to cause you grief, Kyle. It has pained me to wait this long to reunite with you all, but I could not risk being discovered before Peter was able to realize his vision. What vision? Oh, it's nothing really. I was just worried there was an infection, and I didn't want our listeners to catch cold, so I removed the plague. Wait. We had a... We had a plague? Of a sort. The matter has been resolved. But how? It's... it's like, uh... What's that vampire from the show you're always talking about? You know, he's always laughing you know, with the numbers. The Count? Exactly, exactly, yeah. And just like the Count, we waited for the cover of night, we asked politely to be invited inside, we drugged and seduced our way into the innermost sanctums of the residence, and sunk our teeth into the proverbial neck of the unsuspecting victims within, removing, in this way, the corrupted essence within them. Okay, that's not what the Count does at all. And if you'd read my blog about the program, you'd... No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to insinuate anything untoward about the character of the Count. It's, it's just a loose example. Man, I don't understand what's going on at all, but for now, I'm just glad you guys are okay. The rest of the gang will be back any time now. They called in a bit ago freaking out about your orbital art project. Ah, they picked up on those end-of-the-world vibes, huh? Good. And... Dan and Atticus will be glad to know it was just you on the moon. They half had us convinced an alien invasion had begun. Hey, there's Dan. Dan, it's Peter. He was the moon truder. Peter? Hey, Peter, good to see you, man. Whoa, you look terrible. Can't stop, walk and talk. Peter's back? Hey, wow, you look awful. I can't help the features I was born with, Atticus. No, I just meant all the bl Pardon the intrusion. Train arriving momentarily at Great Hall Station. Perhaps you'd like to freshen up before this reunion trend continues. For the sake of your self-esteem. Hmm. Good call. Hey, uh, take another lap around the hallway, guys. I'm ducking into the water closet. Uh, sure. But... Hey, do you, do you need a fresh... Wait, why are we still walking? Are we really going to do just a slow circle in the bathroom? All right, I'm ready for my close-up. Did, did you clean up at all? I think he used some of the blood to slick what's left of his hair back. Uh, that I did. Thanks for noticing, Dan. It's not often you get a second chance to make a first impression, after all. Oh, and here's the canister of cover art. Didn't want you guys to get in trouble. Don't worry, I washed my hands after I handled it. Now let's get out on the platform and uh, greet our dear friends. Oh, wow. Olivia is docked to the train. <laughs> That's neat. Though I've never seen her panels turn quite that fiery red. 
Hey, up there, it's... it's me. It's, uh... Peter Joseph Lewis! You have violated security protocol 2217, endangering my charges. You are to be remanded and ritualistically tortured for no less than 11 months. Wow, you look terrible. Regardless, deploying stun net turret. Stand down, Olivia. Peter, I'm so glad you're all right. You and James both. He came online aboard the train when Olivia finished charging to briefly explain. It's been ages. Oh my, you don't look so good. Your plan was successful, yes? Because if you put my crew in danger for no reason, I will rain down upon you a searing hellfire the likes of which... Olivia! Sorry, she's become a little protective. Yes, it was almost 100% successful. It was all worth it, I promise. We were able to remove the infected cells from our listenership before they devolved into mindless, shambling, aggressive husks, all claws and teeth and ugh. Just, most of the corruption evaporated off into space. James is still cleaning up the rest inside the moon base. The listeners are unharmed? Yes, barely beamed more than a few droplets of blood from each of them. But even so, the end quantity was, uh... Severe. Complicated by an abundance of nooks. I've yet to even begin the crannies. However, I am confident that my efforts with the cleansing fire will prevail. Yeah, the owl may be out of commission for a while. Anyone else hear a bird in here? Then I am satisfied. Vengeance mode disabled. So, with the mess up there on the moon, we'll have to do the final live tour broadcast from the main control booth. I... I, uh... haven't gone back in there since... Well, it's not really important. I just... I just want to say... I know I haven't been very accessible... Lately, even before I disappeared for a year. But uh, I want you guys to know that you can trust me. We, we have each other's backs. Uh, I guess I felt like I needed to pull this off to prove that, to set things right. But I am truly sorry that I put you all in danger, and that I kept you in the dark. I want to do better. And I know I'm saying this, covered head to toe in the rapidly drying blood of the innocent. I mean, they're all fine. They didn't even notice me taking it, and there wasn't time to ask. So yes, it was technically a heist, but it was for the greater good, and you can, you can just trust me, is all. But I understand, I do. If you'd like to just go ahead and... Fire a stun net, turrets toss me in the brig, and continue to try to move on with your lives. I wouldn't blame you. I do always seem to mess things up, huh? Peter, I can't claim to understand a single word of what you just said, but you are a member of this team, a member of this family, and we couldn't be happier to have you back home where you belong. Yeah! <laughs> You know what he smells like? Weirdly? Like some kind of burnt nickels? 
Yeah, exactly that. So odd. <sighs> if you only knew. Come on, let's all head to the control room. If you don't mind, I could use your help setting up the last batch of stories for those good and juicy folks out there. Happy to assist. Here, I've made a few notes. Feel free to improvise as it strikes you. Mm, me, 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 me. Everyone ready? Hello, Hello and welcome, welcome listeners, dear. I am incredibly proud to say that this is the No Sleep Podcast. We are? Well, frankly, we're all just grateful to be here, alive, together, with you. To have this chance to be heard, to be invited into your home, just... Just like the Count from Kyle... I mean, from my favorite TV show. I just told you, that's... To have the chance to tell stories that may fascinate you, or shiver your spine that lead you to ponder and dread, or just distract you from the difficult subjects of everyday reality. It is our great privilege to be in your life, to share our experience here, at least once a week. It is the thrill of a lifetime spent battling unspeakable horrors to perform for such a supportive audience. We have nothing but love for you all. We have nothing for them? Well, nothing but love, in this final selection of stories. Which, like any humble train dinner made with secret ingredients, is sure to go down smooth. So, do make yourselves comfortable. Forgive yourself for that one embarrassing thing that just seems to keep resurfacing. You deserve to move on. Let your mind flow as if you're tumbling down the lunar portal jump. Let your imagination swirl like the colors of the goop acceptance port in the autumn. Aw, that's lovely. Follow me now, into our first tale. Come along now for our first tale, where a British detective recounts the case of a young woman caught trying to kill her child. Goodness, that sounds like it must be written by Kathy Joy and performed by Andy Cresswell and Penny Scott Andrews. Indeed. So delve into a little family history with my perfect little boy. Ten years ago, when I was a newly minted detective inspector, I was given an unusual case. Officers have been called to a home disturbance only to find a mother trying to carve her four-year-old son like a Christmas ham. The officers managed to subdue her and keep the boy from harm, and the woman was placed in police custody. It was my job to figure out what happened. I started by questioning the mother. Her name was Rachel. During the interrogation, she sat stock still, staring into space, dark circles under her eyes. Despite my best efforts to coax her to talk, all she did was repeat, my perfect little boy, over and over. I went to Rachel's flat to see if I could find any clues. That's when I found her computer. It turned out that Rachel had been a blogger, and a fairly popular one too. Hoping it might offer a window into a broken mind, I went through each post. What I found has stayed with me to this day. I won't repeat every post, 
but I'll share enough to give you an idea of what happened. Minus the extraneous ramblings, of course. Wednesday, July the 5th. Title. So I started a blog. I've been struggling a lot recently. So my sister suggested I write a blog. So, here I am. Let's get something out of the way. I'm a single parent. I live in a tiny flat with my three-year-old boy, Joshua. He's an angel. He's always been easy to take care of. He cried very little as a baby, and I didn't even need to do much to get him to sleep through the night. I often think he did it himself. I've always been so proud of my genius little boy. The problem is I work from home. Being a single parent, I can't afford childcare. So I found a job writing product content. A company gives me details of their product, and I write the text that goes in the pamphlets or on their website, as well as product descriptions, etc. It's as boring as it sounds, but it pays the bills. As you can imagine, I'm often glued to my computer. I feel so guilty when Joshua asks me to play, and I have to tell him, in a minute, mummy's working. I took this job so I could be with him, but he's left to entertain himself almost every day. Am I a bad mother? Date, Friday, 21st of July. Title, Thanks for the Support. I just wanted to thank everyone for their supportive comments. Sorry I haven't responded to everyone individually. I'll try and answer as many questions as I can here. Lots of you have been asking about Joshua's father. Well, when I waved the positive pregnancy test at my husband, instead of being happy, he looked shocked and then angry. He accused me of cheating. Turns out, hubby dearest had gotten a vasectomy in secret. Can you believe it? Like all couples, we discussed our views on having kids. He said he wanted them. That turned out to be a lie. He knew I really wanted them and said he did too so I would marry him. For the record, I did not have an affair. I love my husband more than anything. I did my research. Sometimes vasectomies don't stick. Not that he cared. He packed his things and moved out, leaving me alone and pregnant. After months of fighting, I decided Joshua and I didn't need him in our lives, so I signed the divorce papers. I haven't heard from him since. Good riddance. When Joshua started asking about his father, I lied and said he died before he was born. It didn't seem all that far from the truth. When he's old enough, I'll tell him, but for now, the last thing I want is for him to know his own father didn't want him. Date Thursday, 2nd of November. Title, I got the job. You know how I applied for that permanent role? I got the job! Now I have steady income, I won't have to work so many hours. I can't wait to spend more time with my precious little boy. I'll keep the blog running so I can update you on how things are going. Date, Friday, December the 8th. Title, Should I be worried? I peeked into Joshua's room to check on him and found him sitting on his bed, giggling, talking to somebody. Nobody else was in his room. I figured it was just an imaginary friend. Over the dinner, Joshua smiled and hummed to himself as he ate. He looked happy. Is it okay for kids to have imaginary friends? Should I monitor it? 
date, Tuesday, December the 15th. Title, Imaginary Friend Drama. I took everyone's advice and asked him about his imaginary friend. Now I wish I hadn't. He told me he was talking to Daddy? Maybe I made a mistake telling him his father was dead. He seems so happy, though. Happier than he's been in a long time. Should I tell him the truth? Date, Saturday, January the 9th. Title, New Friends. You guys remember the new couple who moved into the building, right? The ones with the little boy about Joshua's age? Well, I took the plunge like you guys suggested, and it worked out perfectly. Here's the scoop. The couple are called Carla and Mike. Their son is called Tommy. He loves trucks and Lego, just like Joshua. Joshua was a little hesitant at first, but when Mike broke out a huge box of Lego, our boys dove into it and we didn't hear a peep out of them for hours. The two have become inseparable. Joshua is already begging to have a sleepover. Best of all, since he and Tommy have been playing together, Joshua hasn't mentioned his imaginary friend once. Date, Sunday, February the 21st. Title, Daddy is Back. I was watching Tommy for Carla while she ran some errands. The boys were playing in Joshua's room, as usual. I kept the door open so I could keep an eye on them. Suddenly, Tommy screamed and I ran inside. He had a raw red mark on his cheek. Joshua was hiding in the corner. I managed to calm Tommy down. He told me Joshua hit him. I was mortified. Joshua knows better than that. Joshua claimed Daddy did it. I separated the boys, keeping Joshua in his room so he could think about what he had done. Is this imaginary friend thing getting out of hand? Date, Saturday, February 27th, 2016. Title, Help. Things have gotten worse. Joshua is throwing things around his room. I haven't caught him doing it yet. By the time I get to his room, the mess has already been made. The furniture is tipped over and his stuff is thrown about the room. He also keeps screaming, Mummy says you're not real, over and over in the middle of the night. The neighbours downstairs are complaining about the noise. I don't blame them. I've taken all the furniture out of his room and it seems to have stopped, but I can't stop him shouting. Should I take him to a therapist? Date, Wednesday, May the 4th. Title, New Pet. These are pictures of our new cat. Many of you suggested getting a pet to keep Joshua company. He named it Fluffy. Not original, but he's four. I was a little hesitant at first. Cats have been going missing around the neighbourhood, so I told Joshua that Fluffy must stay inside. That should keep the little fella safe. Joshua was so excited when we picked out a collar and some toys. He loves playing with Fluffy while I work. The weird thing is... The cat will go everywhere in the house, except Joshua's bedroom. Date, Wednesday, June the 1st. Title, Fluffy is Missing. I asked Joshua if he let Fluffy out, but he said no. I can't think of where the little guy could be. I'll put up posters. We'll find him soon. Date, Wednesday, June the 15th. Title, Worried. Since Fluffy went missing, Joshua has gotten worse. He keeps talking to somebody in his room. 
When I open the door, he stops and looks at me blankly. I ask him who he's talking to, but he just shrugs and says, Nobody, mummy. It is creepy as fuck. I don't know. Maybe it's the sleep deprivation talking. I keep having nightmares about being chased through my house. It feels so real that I can't go back to sleep afterwards. Date, Saturday, July the 2nd. Title, Tommy is missing. Carla knows she tucked him into bed last night. But when she checked on him this morning, his bed was empty. I checked Joshua's room just in case he had snuck in. I asked Joshua if he had seen Tommy, but he just shook his head. Date, Sunday, July the 3rd. Title, Update on Tommy. The police found Tommy's pyjamas covered in blood in an alleyway outside, but there was no sign of her little boy. With Carla's permission, I have put up a picture of Tommy. Please post it far and wide. If anyone has any information, please call the police and quote the crime number below. Date, Friday, 8th of July. Title, I think I'm going crazy. I don't know what's happening. I haven't been sleeping. As soon as I start to drift off, I hear the cry of a cat or the sobbing of a child. I rush to Joshua's room, but he's fast asleep. I feel like I'm being watched. The nightmares have been getting worse. And when I wake up, I swear I see a dark figure looming over me. But it vanishes. I'm scared. Unpublished draft. Date, Saturday, 17th of July. Title, Please Help Me. Oh God, oh God, oh God, they're here. All of them, under the floorboards. All the cats and Tommy. Oh God, I found Tommy, crammed in a suitcase in Joshua's closet. There's blood everywhere. And Joshua just stood there, smiling. Evil doesn't look evil. If it did, you'd never let it into your home. Never let it get close. Evil looks innocent, sweet. It fools everyone. I've locked myself in my bedroom. He's at the door. Please, somebody help me. My son, or whatever the fuck he is, is trying to break down the door. The banging is too hard for just a little boy. I think I can hear another voice. A man's voice. Mummy, Daddy wants to play, Joshua keeps saying. Oh, the hinges are starting to come loose. I can't get to my phone. My son is a monster. I don't know if he was ever a little boy. Please, help me. Date, Saturday, 17th of July. Title, My Perfect Little Boy. Everything is fine. Don't call me. Don't leave me messages. I would ignore them all. From now on, it's all about me and Joshua. My perfect little boy. My perfect little boy. My perfect little boy. My perfect little boy. That My Perfect Little Boy crap went on for several pages. The draft was up for about five minutes before it was removed by the user and replaced with a My Perfect Little Boy one. I handed in my initial report. Forensics searched the place. Sure enough, they found the bodies of various cats and other small animals under the floorboards and Tommy's body in the suitcase in the closet. 
just like the entry said. Shortly after the incident, the blog was removed out of respect for everyone involved. You won't find it anywhere except here. Rachel was charged with the murder of Tommy, as well as child abuse and reckless endangerment. Her defense managed to secure an insanity plea with little difficulty, especially when countless specialists agreed she had postpartum depression and potentially schizophrenia. Strange as it may sound, I felt sorry for Rachel. Watching her descent into madness through her blog posts was hard. The warning signs had been there. There was so much pressure on her that she cracked. Or at least, that's what I thought then. Now, I know better. Two weeks ago, my daughter Beverly called and begged for my help. Two of her foster kids, twin seven-year-old girls, went missing. She had already reported it to the police and they were dealing with it, but she wanted me to look around their room to see if I could find anything, just to reassure her. As her father, I couldn't say no. Sadly, I didn't find anything. As I came downstairs, I saw her other foster kid sitting at the kitchen table eating dinner. As soon as I clapped eyes on him, I recognized him. Those blue eyes and that mop of golden blonde hair were all too familiar. He'd grown taller and lankier, but there was no denying it was Joshua. He smiled, and it felt like an arrow made of ice shot through me. There was something off about his gaze. I brushed it aside, told myself I was imagining it. That night, I had a nightmare about being chased through my house. Something dark and shapeless was snapping at my heels, inching closer and closer. I was wrenched out of the horrific vision when my phone went off. For the briefest second, I thought I saw a dark figure looming over the bed before it vanished. I reached for my mobile phone, which was perched on the bedside table. It was 2 a.m. I answered, trying not to sound as groggy as I felt. Then the caller said words that every parent dreads hearing. DCI, Massey? It's your daughter. Something's happened. I drove like a bat out of hell to Beverly's. Police were already swarming the place, the flashing blues of the squad cars casting a sinister glow. Nobody would meet my gaze. A few officers tried to bar my path as I stormed to the door. I shoved them aside. Inside, my little girl was strewn over the floor. Her body bent at unnatural angles. Sitting at her side was Joshua. He looked up when I approached, eyes locking with mine. I could have sworn I saw the little bastard smile as I drew near. Daddy did it, he said, the trace of a grin on his lips. Beverly's spine had been snapped with such force that Joshua was immediately disregarded as a suspect, despite his history. There was no way a skinny 14-year-old had the strength to do that, they said. I knew better. I told them to check under the floorboards. Lo and behold, they found the bodies of the twins who had gone missing crammed into plastic bags to contain the smell of their rotting corpses. Even still, they let Joshua go. The girls had been savaged the same way as my daughter. Instead... Beverly's husband, a burly fireman, became their main suspect. They're going to charge him with three counts of murder. They're wrong, 
I know who really did it. I saw it on his smug little face. Joshua. There's only one way to stop this. I need to do what Rachel couldn't. I have a gun and I plan to use it. That's why I'm recording this. I need everyone to know why I'm about to gun down a 14-year-old boy. Rachel was right. Evil doesn't look evil. That's why I'm going to do what she couldn't. I'm going to make sure he doesn't hurt anyone else. And if the little monster gets me first, I need everyone to know what he really is. He's... He's a... He's... He's a... Perfect... Little boy. He's a perfect 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 little boy. In our second tale, we meet a boy who has convinced his parents to allow him to stay up late to watch a meteor shower. They soon realize, however, that one of the meteors appears to be heading directly for their neighborhood. Written by Taylor McNelly and performed by... The incomparable Nicole Doolin. Yes, yes. Alongside Ellie Hirschman, Mike Delgadio, Graham Rowett, Erin Lillis, and Mary Murphy. Do you dare discover what crash-landed in the woods? Well, whatever it is, you see. It fell from the sky. My ten-year-old son Connor came home from school practically vibrating with excitement. He had always been a bright child, and nothing excited him more than outer space. When he was four, he only wanted bedtime stories about spaceships and aliens and little men on the moon. During the summer, we would camp in our backyard on the weekends, and John and I would let him stay up late to watch the stars come out. Connor would be so sleepy by the time it was fully dark outside, but his eyes never strayed from the big dark sky above, filling every passing minute with more and more twinkling stars. As he grew up, he never lost that innocent passion of learning everything he could about space. He played exclusively with toy spaceships and aliens, watched TV shows about astronauts and distant planets. The kid was obsessed. John and I played into it, happy that our boy was so passionate about something. When he came home from school that day, I asked him what he was so excited about. There's going to be a meteor shower tonight, a real live meteor shower. Can I please, please stay up to watch it? I suppose you can. You're lucky this is happening on a Friday night and not a school night. When is it supposed to start? Oh, just later. Connor avoided my gaze. He shuffled away to put his backpack in the closet, but he couldn't fool me. 
I knew when my son was trying to get away with something. Connor was a smart kid, but not a real great liar. And what does that mean exactly? Well, the shower can really start at any time. It's not like a TV show, you know? I know that. When do you want to watch it? After midnight. What? Are you serious? You're ten years old, Connor. Regardless of whether or not it's a school night, you still have a bedtime. Midnight is really late. But that's when it's the best time to see them. It's really dark, so they show up the brightest. Please, Mom. You'll see how cool it is, I promise. He looked at me with puppy dog eyes, and I felt myself waver. Let's wait until your dad gets home, and we'll ask him. A cop-out for sure, but it was better than giving him the go-ahead just because I couldn't say no to him. What do you want for dinner? We spent the next couple of hours talking about the meteor shower that Connor just had to see. It was really incredible how much this kid knew about them. I wasn't really interested in learning about space, but I always loved hearing my son talk about something he was so keen on. By the time John came home from work, I thought Connor would have exhausted himself with all of his meteor facts. But of course I was wrong. As soon as John walked through the door, Connor just about pounced on him and started spitting off facts left and right. Poor John didn't even know what hit him. I stood in the hallway laughing at John's bewildered face as he tried to figure out what Connor was trying to tell him. And did you know that meteors are actually caused by particles that are only like the size of a grain of sand? But the heat they give off is so intense that we can see it from miles and miles away. Isn't that cool, Dad? <laughs> yeah, Con, it is really cool. <laughs> but why are you telling me all this? Did you learn about it in school today? Yeah, I did. Miss Riley told us there's going to be a meteor shower tonight, so we learned all about them in our science section. And then during library hour, I found a book all about meteors and meteor showers. Mrs. Cole let me check it out so I could take it home and read it when my homework is all done. And is your homework all done? Well, no. But it's the weekend, and I really don't have much. <laughs> all right, fair enough, kiddo. Later that night, after listening to Connor talk nonstop for hours, John and I finally broke down and agreed to let him stay up to watch the meteor shower. Neither of us had the heart to make him go to bed and miss what was surely a rare occurrence. Not to mention, we both knew that even if we did send him to bed, he would just stay up to watch it out of his bedroom window. Connor could be stubborn and relentless. Just like his mom, John liked to joke. We did at least make him wash the dishes for dinner before agreeing to let him stay up for the shower. After nightfall, Connor led the way out into our front yard, facing the cul-de-sac beyond our driveway. It was a cool night, with just the smallest hint of a breeze rustling the leaves in the trees surrounding our little street. We set up a trio of folding chairs in the driveway and settled in to wait for the meteor shower. I thought how lucky we were to live in a relatively secluded area to watch the night sky. A small forest surrounded our cul-de-sac, and we only had two neighbors on either side of our house. A single lamppost lit the street, but all around us it was dark and quiet. Some of our neighbors, Tim O'Malley and his wife Marcia, saw us sitting in the driveway and came out to see what we were doing. 
Connor excitedly informed them of the meteor shower and how cool it would be. Hey, you're welcome to sit down and join us. We've got a couple extra camping chairs in the garage. Don't mind if we do. We weren't really doing much with our evening anyway, were we, Marsha? Marsha didn't say anything, but offered up a shy smile. They were the kind of couple that I always wondered how they even got together. Tim was social and charismatic, but Marsha always seemed so timid and afraid of everything. Somehow, they had made it work for the 35 years they had been married. Tim went back to his house next door and grabbed an old steel fire pit to set up in our driveway, while John grabbed the extra camping chairs. I passed out beers to the adults while Connor informed anyone who would listen everything he knew about meteors. We chatted and had a pleasant evening while stars slowly filled the night sky. It was well past midnight when Connor yelled that he saw something in the dark night sky. Hundreds of stars twinkled in the inky blackness above us. Everyone craned their necks to look up. Tim cried out at the exact moment I saw my first meteor. It only existed for a fraction of a second before the trail of light was extinguished and the sky returned to darkness once again. Soon, more cries of excitement were made around our little circle as more and more meteors appeared in the night sky. It reminded me of the 4th of July and watching fireworks in the distance. We oohed and awed as shooting stars raced across the sky. There were so many of them. I felt so tiny as the sky rained fire above my head. I held John's hand, enraptured by the force of nature occurring overhead. He gave my hand a little squeeze, and I knew he was feeling as small as I felt. I watched as one particular meteor acted differently than all the others we had seen. This one didn't fizzle out after a second, but seemed to grow in intensity and size. The tail behind it lengthened and stretched across the sky. The ball of light at the head of the tail grew bigger and bigger. It grew so white-hot and so bright that it burned my eyes to look at it. I shielded my eyes and looked around at my neighbors. Everyone was covering their eyes too, bewildered by this odd meteor that hadn't behaved like it should have. The light grew brighter and brighter, the meteor flying closer and dropping out of the sky. Our little cul-de-sac lit up as bright as day. Even with my eyes closed, the light glared through my hands and eyelids. It seared my eyes and I cried out at the pain. An angry roaring sound filled the air as the light grew even brighter. I could feel the sound deep in my chest. Seconds later, a huge crash exploded outside the cul-de-sac. It shook the earth and we all screamed. A huge wave of heat knocked me to the ground. The bright light behind my eyes was gone. I cautiously opened them. The fire had gone out and all of our camping chairs were knocked over. My neighbors were standing up slowly as if dazed. The meteor shower in the sky had ended and the stars no longer twinkled above us. A strange aura of glowing blue light had appeared through the trees beyond our houses. I looked to John and Connor who had fallen to the ground nearby. They both wore shocked looks on their faces that glowed eerily in the light given off by whatever had landed in our neighborhood. What the hell was that? A meteor? No, meteors only exist in the sky. 
they're barely the size of a grain of sand. Then what was it? Marsha looked terrified as she held Tim's hand in a vice-like grip. I could see her trembling in the eerie light. Maybe we should go investigate. Yeah, I bet it was a meteorite. That would be so cool. A meteorite? How could a meteorite land so close to us and not kill us all? I don't know. Maybe it was just a little one. Let's go check it out. Hold on a sec, Connor. We can't just go running off into the forest. It's dark outside. Plus, it's way past your bedtime and the meteor shower is over. But Mom, I want to see the meteorite. No, your mom is right. It's too dangerous for you to go running around in the dark. If it is a meteorite, we can go back and look at it in the morning. Come on, Connor. Let's go inside and get ready for bed. Connor pouted and ran inside, slamming the front door behind him. I sighed and followed, dreading his teenage years that were soon coming. John gave a reassuring smile as I went inside. I found Connor in his room, dutifully donning his pajamas. He glared at me when I opened the door, but still crawled into bed. I explained to him how dangerous the forest could be at night. But he wouldn't listen to me and rolled on his side facing away from me. I sighed and left him alone, figuring he would be happier in the morning when we could go check out the cool meteorite in the daylight. Back outside on the driveway, Tim and John were talking excitedly, flashlights in hand. Marcia stood off to the side, clutching her arms and looking like a poor lost child. I put my hand on John's arm and asked what we were going to do. The strange blue light shone steadily out from the trees. We're going to go find out what the hell that thing was that crashed out there. Judging by the effects of the crash, it can't be that far away. And it must be what's causing this weird light. Never heard of a meteorite giving off light like this before. It could be something we've never seen before. John looked so excited, but in the strange light it gave his face a manic and crazed look that I didn't care for. Are you sure it's safe? It's still pretty dark and you could get lost in there. I'm sure it's fine. These flashlights all have brand new batteries, and really, the forest isn't all that big. It's more like a big cluster of trees than anything. We'll be fine, honey. Oh, you think I'm letting you go out there all by yourselves, do you? This was starting to sound like an adventure, and what John said was true. The forest wasn't big, not even a mile across. Marsha, however, clutched Tim's hand. I'm not going in there. We don't even know what that thing is. It can't be normal. That light is not normal. Please, Tim, don't go. I promise you I'll be okay. You don't have to come with us. You could stay at our house and watch Connor. We can't leave him home alone with all the excitement. And I want to go with them to make sure they don't do anything stupid. Um, yeah, sure. Tim gave her a brief squeeze before letting her go. She walked quickly to the front door of my house and let herself in. All right, let's get this adventure started. The three of us crossed the cul-de-sac and walked into the line of trees. I thought it would be darker inside the forest with the trees closing in on all sides and leaves blocking the feeble light from the stars. The strange light glowed between the trees. It grew steadily stronger the farther in we walked. It reminded me of fog on a rainy day seeping between the trees. The night was still and quiet. 
There were no noises apart from our footsteps crunching through fallen leaves. The forest seemed unnatural and eerie. The normal nighttime noises were gone, and the silence they left behind was heavy and oppressive. I felt if I made any noise beyond my footsteps in the dead leaves, it would disturb something in the night. I knew it was crazy. I knew there was nothing in the forest but the trees. There was nothing to be scared of. No crazy monster to be woken up by the footsteps of mortals. But I couldn't shake that feeling. That animal instinct to stay as quiet as possible. Tim and John must have felt the same thing. I noticed that our footsteps became softer, quieter. We paid more attention to each footfall to avoid stepping on twigs that could break and snap. The air around us got colder, and I began to see wisps of mist curling and twisting among the roots of the trees. Goosebumps creeped up my arms. Ahead of us, the trees thinned and the airy light grew stronger. All at once, we stood at the edge of a clearing that had been made by the thing that landed here. Trees lay broken and twisted away from the center. The thing in the center looked like some kind of pod or egg. It was inky black, surrounded by the strange glowing light. The light radiated off, burning into my eyes as I stared. It was shaped like a pine cone with the base struck several feet into the ground and rising up to a tapered and rounded point. As we watched, several glowing bright lights appeared running from the tip of the pod down to the base. The blue lines widened and the black segments split apart, spilling light onto the forest floor. The pod opened up until the segments lay flat against the ground. Looking at the pod was like staring directly into the sun. I shielded my eyes from the intense light and squinted while still trying to see what was happening. There was something inside the pod, a kind of column. It was as black as the outside of the pod had been, but it looked like it was moving. A horrible image of flies crawling over a desiccated corpse flashed through my mind. As I watched, horrified, small tendrils of blackness twisted away from the column. They curled out from the pod, the tips dancing in the light as if searching through the air for something. As I watched their dance-like movements, small appendages popped away from the main part. They looked like hooks or thumbs with claws and ran the whole length of the tentacle like a centipede's many legs. They sat in pairs and clicked together as though clapping. More and more of the strange clawed tentacles unwound out of the pod. They swirled and swayed as they climbed up into the air and their inky blackness showed in stark contrast to the light coming from the pod. The clicking of the claws began to sound something like Morse code, like they were talking to each other. I tripped over something on the forest floor and nearly fell over. I hadn't realized that I had been walking ever so slowly closer to the pod. The dancing tentacles and clicking claws had mesmerized me like a snake charmer. I didn't know how long I had been staring in a trance at the pod. Even then, although aware of myself again, I felt a longing to stare at the tentacles and lose myself. I had to pull my eyes away from it to look at the others. 
I nearly screamed when I saw what was happening to them. I hadn't seen it while I had been transfixed by the pod, but larger, root-like tentacles had slithered along the ground and climbed their way up the bodies of Tim and John. These tentacles didn't have hooks like the others, but they were slimy and wet and rubbing along the eyes of the men who stared transfixed at the pod in front of them. I finally screamed when I realized what I was seeing. The pod was licking them. It was licking their eyes. Beneath the licking tentacles, their eyes had completely disappeared. It looked like acid had melted the skin over their eyes and glued them shut. Flesh-colored droplets dripped from their eyelids and down their faces. I ran to John and pulled at the slimy tentacle mangling his face. It was so slippery I couldn't get a good grip on it. And it was strong. I couldn't pull it off of him. Whatever substance it was coated in felt warm, almost hot. And the nerves in my hands tingled painfully as I tried in vain to get it off of my husband. He didn't react or even move as I called his name over and over. I tried to push him over to get him to wake up, but he was too deep in the trance. I couldn't stand to look at what was left of his face. By now, the acid had melted off most of his nose, and the tongue-like tentacle was working its way over his mouth. I could start to see the stark white of the bones in his jaw. When I finally turned away, the pod had changed again when I looked back at it. A black orb now sat on top of the column. As I watched, a seam split the orb in half, exactly how the pod had opened up earlier. The seam got wider and wider until it was no longer black, but completely white. No, it wasn't completely white. The longer I stared at the hypnotic orb, I began to see smaller tendrils of black creeping up from the bottom. They snaked up the sides, branching off here and there to look like roots growing upwards. I was so entranced again with staring at this thing that I didn't notice at first that it was moving. It was rotating on an invisible axis until I realized what I was looking at. It was an eye. The eye looked directly at me. It was frighteningly large, with a black iris blending into an even blacker pupil. I struggled to wake myself from its trance. My mind screamed at me to run away as fast as I could. Slowly, as though moving through molasses, I finally convinced my head to turn. The second my eyes broke contact with that thing, I broke out of my trance. I turned around immediately, but something stopped me from bolting away into the forest. The men were staring at me, or at least their faces turned in my direction. Two pairs of melted eyes locked onto my position. The tentacles molesting their faces had retreated back into the pod. I stood frozen in place. I didn't know how they could possibly see me. Behind me, I could hear the rhythmic clicking of the clawed tentacles. There was something different about it now, though. The clicking was becoming more intense, almost frantic. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew it was bad. 
Tim and John, with their mangled faces, took a single step towards me. The clicking became unified with each clawed pair clacking together at the same time. Fuck it. I bolted into the trees. I ran as fast as I could, dodging tree branches and trying not to stumble on roots and sticks. I could hear them behind me, chasing me. The incessant clicking noises followed us as we ran through the forest. Was it controlling them? Somehow telling them what to do? I pushed aside the questions in my mind. It didn't matter. I had to get away. I had to get home. I kept running through the trees. My lungs burned with each breath as I pushed myself to run faster. The trees began to thin, and I could see the light from the cul-de-sac up ahead. I could still hear them crashing through the trees behind me. I gasped with each breath. I just wanted to collapse and cry on the forest floor. My husband was gone. He was chasing me down through the woods as if he was going to kill me. My husband! And I knew if I stopped for a second, he wouldn't hesitate to rip me limb from limb. I broke out of the forest and onto the pavement. I dashed towards the front door of my house, ripped it open, and slammed it shut behind me. My fingers shook as I tried to lock and bolt the door. I didn't stop to breathe as I ran around the house, making sure every single window was locked and covered with drapes. Mom? Connor stood in the hallway staring at me with wide, frightened eyes. He had his spaceship pajamas on and his hair was all tousled from sleep. What's going on? Connor, sweetie, we need to go to the basement. Why? Marsha came out of the bedroom to stand by Connor. She put a protective arm around his shoulders. What happened out there? Where's Tim? I'll explain everything when we're in the basement. I peeked around one of the curtains in the front window. The men were coming out of the forest beyond the cul-de-sac. We didn't have much time before they reached the house. I went to Connor and grabbed his hand. Come on, we're going to the basement now. I was relieved when Connor didn't argue or beg for answers. He followed me quietly as I hurried down the hallway towards the basement door. I looked back to make sure Marsha was following, too. She looked frightened and confused, but followed me down the hallway. We went through the basement door and down the stairs into the darkness. I let go of Connor's hand briefly so I could feel around for the string that would turn the light on. After a few seconds, I found it, and a dim glow illuminated the old basement. It wasn't in great shape. John and I had been meaning to renovate it for ages, but we had never found the time. Tears burned in my eyes at the thought of John, but I pushed the painful feelings aside. I had to make sure Connor and I stayed safe. I recruited Marsha's help in putting the heaviest things we could carry up the stairs to block the door down to the basement. It wasn't much, just a few bags of water softener salt and old sports equipment. I hoped it would hold them off until we could come up with some kind of plan. We went back down the stairs and blocked the egress windows set up high in the walls. It really wouldn't keep them out for long, not if they were determined. But it was the best we could do. We spread out some old sleeping bags on the dirty floor and I wrapped my arms around Connor in a big bear hug. Whatever happened, at least I had my son. I put my head against his and let the tears flow into his curly blonde hair. My husband was gone. 
I knew that now. I had seen his face, or what was left of it. Whatever the hell that pod was, it had taken the humanity from John. He was gone. As good as dead. I hugged Connor tighter. I would never let what happened to John happen to my son. Never. Karen? Marsha reached out a hand to hold mine, squeezing it briefly. Can you please tell us what happened? Connor looked up at me with big blue eyes. He had John's eyes. I took a deep breath and explained what had happened after we reached the pod. I tried to skip some of the more gruesome details about what that licking tentacle had done to their faces. Even by omitting the gore, I could tell I had frightened Marsha and Connor. Tears welled in Marsha's eyes as she came to the same realization I had. Our husbands were gone. I gave Connor a tight squeeze. I couldn't look into his face as he realized that he would never see his father again. At least, not the father he knew. His body was still out there, hunting us down like a wolf. <gasps> they were trying to get in. Marsha gathered close to us and we sat huddled under the single light bulb in the grimy basement. There was nothing we could do but wait and see if they would go away. The banging echoed around us, coming from every direction. They had surrounded the house. I could picture them in my mind, circling the house, banging fists against every window and every door, prying for weaknesses that would let them in. I closed my eyes tight and prayed the locks would hold. We need to call the police. Do you have your cell phone? Mine is still in my house. I think I do. I felt around in my pockets for my phone. I pulled it out and dialed 911. My hands shook so hard I almost dropped the phone trying to push the call button. I held the phone to my ear and heard ringing on the other end. A cool female voice answered. 911, what's your emergency? My husband and a neighbor are outside my house. They're trying to attack us. I thought it would be best not to mention the thing in the forest that had eaten their faces. She would have laughed me off the phone if she knew. Okay, what's your address? I'll send officers right away. I told her my address and finished the call. She said officers should be there in five minutes. I hoped we could make it that long. The banging around the house hadn't stopped. I pulled Connor back into my arms and tried to stay calm. We sat huddled together for what felt like hours, with my hands over Connor's ears, trying to block out the noises of the attack. Then, without warning, the banging suddenly stopped. Marcia and I looked at each other apprehensively. She stood up and crept towards one of the windows, moving aside a towel we had used to cover it. Flashing blue and red lights shone in the basement. The police were here. A horrified scream pierced the night, and all three of us jumped at the sound of it. I stepped to the window with Marcia and peeked outside. Two uniformed police officers stood aiming their weapons at John and Tim a few yards away. Even from a distance, I could see their guns shaking in their hands. John and Tim walked slowly towards the officers, either not seeing or not caring about the guns aimed at their hearts. One of the officers shouted a warning to stop, but it fell on deaf ears. John stumbled to his knees. I cried out from behind the window. 
Blood began pouring out of the wound in John's chest, staining his shirt red. He glanced down briefly, then got back on his feet and continued walking towards the police officers. The bullet in his chest didn't even faze him. I couldn't understand how he was still alive and walking. Something about that pod in the woods must have affected him, but it didn't make any sense. The officer fired another round into John, and this time he didn't even flinch as more blood flowed down his chest. The other officer spoke into his radio and called for backup. They took slow steps backwards, retreating away from Tim and John. Suddenly, Tim and John broke into a sprint and ran at the two officers. They ignored the bullets that shot at them and grabbed the officers by their arms. One of the officers' legs bent at an awkward angle. Tim began dragging him into the woods while John wrestled with the other officer. I watched horrified as John picked up a large rock lying nearby and slammed it down onto the officer's head. He immediately went limp. John grabbed him by the arm and dragged him into the woods after Tim. Silence settled heavily around us. I looked at Connor still cowering on the blanket and tried to figure out what to do. We should leave. They're gone now, but they might come back. And go where? Our homes are here. Tears were running down Marsha's face. I ran my hands through my hair. I don't know. Maybe my mom's? She's about an hour away. That should be enough distance to be safe. Are we going to come back for Dad? His voice was so small and sad my heart broke hearing it. I don't think so, honey. Come with me and we can start packing your suitcase. We're going to stay with Grandma for a little bit. I don't want to leave Dad. I grabbed his hand and squeezed it. I know, but he's gone now. We have to leave him. I'm so sorry. Connor sobbed and threw his arms around me. I hugged him tight for a moment before taking his hand and leading him upstairs to start packing. We packed light. Only one bag apiece with nothing but essentials. Marcia was too scared to leave the house, so I let her borrow some of my things. We all got into the car and I started driving. I kept glancing in the rearview mirror and at the trees outside of the car. Suddenly, at the edge of the trees in front of us, I saw four figures standing there, watching us drive by. Two of them wore police uniforms, and none of them had faces. I pressed the gas pedal down as far as it would go and raced past them. The trees surrounding us thinned and eventually disappeared, leaving buildings and houses in their place. The town was quiet and still, but I didn't take any chances and drove straight to my mom's house, putting as much distance between us and whatever still sat in the forest. As we drove through the night, Connor sat in the back seat staring up at the sky. After what had happened, I hoped his days of excitement about spaceships and aliens and little men on the moon were over. But Connor was a smart kid, and smart kids are very, very curious. Connor's gaze shifted from the vast expanse of space back to me. The look in my son's eyes. Those eyes so much like his father's told me that this wasn't over for us. Not by a long shot.
In our third tale, a woman takes in her brother and his dog after the death of her sister-in-law. Tragedy ensues. That's kind of vague, but yeah. Written by E.E. E. King and performed by Erin Lillis and Mary Murphy. Find out what happens once the honeymoon's over. My brother Chris and his new bride, Margaret, were as happy, good-looking, and nice a couple as you could ever hope to see. Chris was tall and slenderly muscled. He had laughing hazel eyes and a wicked lopsided grin. His mop of dark hair was usually unruly, but in a cute way. Maggie had red hair, creamy skin, and wide blue eyes that seemed to reflect the whole sky. They weren't altogether practical, but you couldn't hold them responsible. Fortune had smiled on them and they smiled back. Who cared if they lacked money or jobs? Chris was a musician and Margaret a writer. They eked out a living. He by playing bar mitzvahs and weddings. She by writing articles for good housekeeping and better homes and gardens than yours. They were irresistible. A combo of charm, brains, enthusiasm, and cheerfulness that was just like a Disney movie. Oh, they had their moments, just like anyone else. Chris could be lazy. Maggie liked buying things she couldn't afford. But who could blame them? Everyone knew they'd work it out. They had a cute little apartment off Hill Street. It was close enough that Chris could bike to his part-time job at Frankie's bar. They adopted a puppy, a spaniel retriever mix with curly golden hair, long ears, and huge, liquid, soft brown eyes. He was irresistible. They named him Mr. Baggins, Mr. B for short. Like everyone else, they had their troubles. Sometimes they'd fight a bit, but all kids will. And I always thought of Chris and Maggie as kids. I mean, he was my baby brother. Well, one day Chris comes home from Frankie's a bit later than usual and more than a tad lit. To make a long fight short, they quarreled. Maggie didn't like him drinking and biking and Chris, bless his heart, was not at his most reasonable. Still, it was nothing, one of those little squabbles you don't even remember. When Chris woke up, Maggie and Mr. Baggins were gone. Now, I don't mean they'd left or anything, they were just out for a walk. Chris felt grumpy, ashamed at himself, and angry with Maggie for not leaving a note. But by four o'clock p.m., he was worried. He was just going out to look for her when a neighbor came up, dragging behind him a whimpering, dirty Mr. Baggins. He'd found the dog running, hysterically crying through the streets. It didn't take long to find out what had happened. They found her near the dog park, broken and crumpled. It had been a hit and run, not much to go on. It's still hard to talk about that time. Seems like we just froze while things moved around us. There was the body. God, does it call Maggie the body? But that's what she was now. We had her cremated and kept her ashes. Chris wanted to take them to Italy with him. He and Maggie had always dreamed of going there. Chris and Mr. Baggins moved in with me. I knew he shouldn't be alone, and I was glad to have him by me. I'd hear him weeping in the night, with Mr. Baggins making little sounds of comfort. 
I think that dog comforted him more than I could. And he comforted Mr. B, too. Maybe it sounds strange, but that dog was nearly as heartbroken as Chris was. For a week, I couldn't get him to eat. But slowly, slowly, they began to mend. The weather was lovely. That warm caress in the air that spring brings. Every morning like clockwork, Mr. Baggins and Chris would jog off to the dog park. That summer, Chris went off to Italy. I got daily emails and two calls. It's a good thing I wasn't the jealous type because I swear he missed Mr. Baggins more than me. I took Mr. B on his walks, watched him race around the park like a wild thing. When we'd get home, he'd fall asleep at my feet. When I came home from work, it was as though he hadn't seen me for a year. He'd jump up and down, wagging his tail and looking at me with eyes full of love. Yet, I swear, since Maggie's death, they always held a deep touch of sorrow. I began looping Mr. B's leash around my wrist. I said it was because Chris and I would have been heartbroken to lose him. I pretended it was to keep him safe, but really, it comforted me to feel the leather wrapped around me. It was like having a friend hold your hand. Chris only stayed away two weeks. He just couldn't stand imagining Maggie there with him. After a month or so, he got his own apartment. I sure did miss him and Mr. Baggins. But I was glad, too. I wanted him to get his life back. I had loved Maggie, probably as much as two sisters can love each other. But I didn't want Chris to live in the past. I still saw him and Mr. Baggins often. Every Saturday, we'd meet at the dog park to watch Mr. B have a morning frolic, then spend the day together, go to a movie, go for a walk, or sometimes just have a big, long meal and end up drunk. It was the sweet time of sorrow. The time when the wound has healed enough so that you can remember, talk, and even laugh about the past. Then one Saturday, God, I'll never forget it. I headed over to the park as usual. About a block away, I heard a noise. If I could sleep, I'm sure it'd haunt my dreams. It was a kind of heavy thud. And then this horrible cry, a howl that was more than animal, but surely not human. I ran, not even aware I was moving. I don't know what I thought, but as soon as I got close, I knew. Somewhere inside, I'd known all along. There was Chris, my beautiful, beautiful, sweet baby brother. My only family, my best friend, lying in the street. His bloody body arched at an unnatural angle. Mr. B was by his side, and I swear to you, that animal was weeping as hard as I was. We went through the motions, got a police report. People at the park had heard the squeal of brakes, but no one had seen anything. I don't know how I got through the next few weeks. If Mr. Baggins hadn't been there, I swear I would have just dried up and died. His big, sad puppy eyes reflected my pain and hurt. They say time heals all wounds. I don't think that's true. Some wounds never heal, but life goes on no matter how you feel. One day, Mr. B, who was watching me bathe, stood up to sniff the water and tumbled in. I laughed. For the first time in forever, I laughed. Mr. Baggins looked embarrassed, but I swear he chuckled a bit too. There are few things as faithful and as accepting as a dog. The next day we went out for our morning walk. The sky was blue and clear. Birds were singing. I looped Mr. B's leash around my wrist. 
I know it was silly, but somehow I felt closer to him that way. It connected us, like those braided friendship bracelets children swap. I felt better than I had since Chris died. Suddenly, Mr. Baggins took off, running as hard and as fast as he could. I pulled on his leash. No, Mr. Baggins, sit! But Mr. B didn't sit or stop or even slow. Mr. B, heel! But he raced full on, heading at a dead run toward the blind corners that edged the park. I couldn't see round the bend, but under the twitter of birdsong, I heard a motor growl. You know how they say that right before the end, your whole life flashes before your eyes? Well, that wasn't true for me. Instead, I saw Maggie. Maggie, beautiful, alive, and laughing. Then just a crumpled corpse. I saw Chris. From burbling baby, through carefree boy, to handsome man and loving husband. My Chris, Maggie's Chris. I dropped the leash, but it was looped around my wrist. Not a bracelet, but a noose. It cut into my flesh, holding me fast, dragging me into the street. The last thing I saw was Mr. B turning to look at me with detached curiosity out of those big, big brown eyes before leaping onto the sidewalk, just clearing the wheels of the oncoming car. Mr. B gave a little yelp, like he was crying. Pain gave way to blackness, and the last thing I heard was a stranger's voice. Oh, you poor, poor, sweet dog. Don't worry, I'll take care of you. In our fourth tale, we meet two brothers after the death of their little sister determined to catch her murderer and deliver their own brand of justice. Street justice! I mean, <clears throat> please continue. Okay. Written by J.D. McGregor and performed by Matthew Bradford, Jeff Clement, and Addison Peacock. This is the story of Nina's Bones and Street Justice. November rolled in crisp and dead. The changing seasons was of little concern for me and my older brother. Vengeance was on our minds. Bryce and I camped out in his station wagon, a few driveways down the road from our parents' house. The keys had been sitting cool in the ignition for some time. I could see my breath inside the car. I cupped my hands over my mouth and blew warm air through my fingers. Mom and Dad used to call Nina their little miracle. It was enduring up until the night she disappeared. After that, the very hint of her memory sliced their insides up like razor wire and exposed them on a silver platter for the whole world to see. You see, everyone in a small community comes together when one of its families is stricken by tragedy. There's not a single person in London Landing that doesn't know what happened to our little sister. Our family had become universal recipients of flowers, homemade food, and the well wishes from all the neighbors. 
Everyone pities the two aging parents, already well into their 50s, trying to establish a new medium in life after the passing of their youngest daughter. It was never their intent to conceive another child after Bryce and I, their older sons, had already grown up to become functioning members of society. Raising an unexpected child into their old age was a challenge they were equipped to handle. Having that very child torn away from them was something they could not. Nina disappeared the night of her ninth birthday. Dad tucked her into bed, read her a few pages from a book, and let her drift away to sleep. Her room was right across the hall. The next morning, her bed was empty. There was no signs of a struggle or forced entry anywhere in the house. The subsequent police investigation was fruitless, as were the countless community-wide searches all over town and the surrounding area. Her body wasn't discovered until a few weeks later. She was found in the forest behind our parents' house by a little boy who had wandered off the path while walking his dog. It was a spot that had already been passed over by search parties many times already. I still remember the way she laid there. Her skin was pale and cracked. Her nighttime pajamas were torn and weathered from exposure. There were no wounds or markings on her body. No sign of trauma, no trace of toxins, nothing. Much like her disappearance, we were given very little on her ultimate cause of death. The only solid fact for us to carry on with was the terrible and irreversible fact that she was dead. Our family spent the next few months believing things could never get any worse. That was before things progressed. It's amazing how quickly the stakes can be raised, and life can kick you while you're down. See, a knock sounded at the door during one of our mundane and mostly silent family dinners. Our father got up to answer it, and wailed like an infant when he got there. Bryce and I ran to the front hall, only to discover him clutching a bleached white bone. The following DNA tests were nothing more than a formality. No one doubted that the child-sized femur belonged to our little sister. Her gravesite, by all appearances, had remained undisturbed. We had local authorities dig all the way down to her coffin, where they found it just the way it had been left. The rich mahogany was still pristine, and hadn't even started the rotting process. Her body was inside, and cut open. Most of the bones had been taken. How someone had managed to get a hold of her bones, and however in the hell they had done it, we had no idea. Neither could we figure out how different parts of her body were still showing up on our parents' doorsteps in the subsequent evenings going forward. Our parents were at a loss their health and well-being on a steep decline. Bryce and I had grown so irate that we didn't know what to do except camp out in our parents' living room during the night hours, praying we could somehow catch this elusive criminal the local authorities seemed totally incapable of tracking down. Every night, we forced ourselves to stay awake, totally forgoing responsibility of our daily lives. Never did we manage to see anyone. The only nights the bones would arrive after that were on the odd nights where we would get frustrated and give up, or accidentally fall asleep on the old leather couches below the living room window in the early morning. It was like whatever demented evil being was in tune with us. 
like they could pinpoint the minute moments of the night where our guards were down and they could leave their horrible gifts. That's how we came to be in the front seat of my brother's car that night. It wasn't anything more than a desperate attempt to try and divert whoever we had been searching for all that time. As if changing our location from our parents' living room to the car on the street was actually going to throw them off our trail. The whole plan was nothing more than a delusion. A desperate and pathetic attempt with no chance of success until one night where it actually worked. The hooded figure approached from down the street. He slunk his way casually down the sidewalk and stopped at the end of our parents' driveway. We almost couldn't believe what we were seeing. The body underneath the shirt looked broad and lined with muscle. It moved with the finesse of a young man still under 25. Something long and white was in his hands. The shape was obvious under the streetlights. He looked both ways before heading up the lawn and towards the door. He stepped lightly, but not so much to make us think that noise was of his primary concern. We waited until he was on the front steps before quietly opening our doors and stepping onto the street. Carrying aluminum bats, we tiptoed as fast as we could, slowly reducing the distance between us and him. If we could just get to the lawn while he was still in the stoop, we would have that motherfucker cut off and pinned in. The chance for retribution was so close I could almost taste it. The only kind of justice left appropriate after all the misery he's put us through. The kind we could enforce ourselves. He knelt down on the porch and placed the bone, which looked like Nina's forearm, gently down on the welcome mat. He slid it around, adjusted the angle as if he were intent on improving the presentation like a morbid mantelpiece. We were mere steps away from the lawn. Bryce bared his fangs in anticipation. Except it was more than just the excitement that came with the prospect of finally closing in on our prey. It was the maniacal look of a man teetering on the brink of insanity. A line, or perhaps, I had probably been the last barrier to stop him from falling over the edge. I didn't know what he would be capable of doing once he got his hands on this person. The cool grass crunched beneath our feet when we took our first steps up from the curb. My grip tightened over the bed. My palms ached while they squeezed against it. Bryce was the first to lose patience with his stealth mission. He quickened his pace and the crunching of his steps became loud enough to alert the hooded figure of our presence. His head shot up like a deer, still and acutely aware. He slowly turned around towards us. He made no attempt to run or engage in a physical altercation. His arms stayed still by his sides. Bryce started to shake while he lifted his bat up in front of him. Bryce, don't do anything stupid. The goal was not to wake our parents or any of their neighbors up. There was no need to involve them in the horrors that would take place that night. But my words were of little consequence. Bryce rushed forward with his elbows above his head. The hooded figures simply stood there, unflinching and apathetic towards his oncoming attacker. Bryce brought the bat down with the entire weight of his hulking frame over the hood's head. He connected well enough for the figure's body to go limp and collapse to the ground. His hands grazed over the concrete steps before finally going still. I prayed that the impact had not been enough to kill him. We didn't want him dead. Not at that point, at least. 
Bryce stood over the hood's body, which moved as little on the ground as it did when it was standing. He brought the bat up again as if he meant to strike again. I ran beside him and held it back. Not yet. We need answers first. Lit by only the dim light of our phones, we dragged the hooded figure into the woods behind our parents' house. He remained motionless the entire way. It had proved rather fortunate that Bryce had rendered him unresponsive. Though we hadn't yet worked the courage to pull back his hood and see the face, I could feel the muscle on his frame. His body was remarkably light, but he would have been capable of putting up quite the struggle had he been able to. He was muddied and covered by discolored leaves by the time we had dragged him out into the clearing. Our choice of location was acutely deliberate. It was a rare open space in what was mostly dense and untouched brush. Thick trees surrounded us on all sides. It was a spot we had known about in the woods since we were boys, running through the woods, chasing each other until our parents would call us for dinner. That was a long time ago, back when we were Nina's age and younger. That place was no more than a stone's throw away from where her body was discovered. We pulled his body up against a tree and sat him against the base. His head tilted forward. My heart fluttered, realizing how close we were to discovering his identity. I couldn't help but feel relieved when his neck slunk downwards, orienting his face directly at the ground. After so much time detesting this person and trying so desperately to apprehend him, it seemed I wasn't ready to deal with the cold truth of who it actually was. I leaned my phone against the tree roots and let its light shine up. It was barely enough to illuminate the immediate area. Bryce set his back down on the ground and rubbed his hands together. Are you going to pull his hood back? Was hoping you would. We locked eyes with one another. His hesitance reminded me of the same rational-thinking older brother that he used to be, before our lives had descended into chaos. I looked back at the hooded figure's body. He looked thinner with his back relaxed against the tree. Still, he did not move. Who do you think it is? I don't know. Gotta be someone local, right? No one from out of town would have been sitting on this for so long. Bryce, not this again. Well, it has to, right? We've been over this a thousand times. I don't have any idea who this is. You don't have any idea who it fucking is. If we did, we would have taken care of this a long time ago. The truth was that I had long suspected someone from the local police force or someone involved in the medical examination after her body was found. Perhaps one of them was actually sick enough to tamper with the dead body of a little girl and exchange her real bones for fakes so they could gift the originals to torture the grieving family later on. Even then, the pieces didn't add up. I shuddered, not from the cold, but from the brutal reminder of just how long we'd been suffering. The experience had taken its toll. For the better part of a year, we had been living with the knowledge that our baby sister had been taken from the world too early. After that, someone actually had the audacity to defy the laws of physics and dig up her bones without disturbing the gravesite, and return them to us like they were little gifts. I tossed my baseball bat between either hand. Flip a coin. Maybe we can get him to lower the hood himself. 
Bryce started rummaging through the little pack he had carried along with him. I quickly glanced back at the figure again. Although it appeared his position still hadn't changed, there was something discernibly different about him. I couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was. Perhaps it was the shadows. The weight of his body just seemed... off. I turned back to Bryce. I don't think he's going to be doing anything on his own accord. Bryce finally found what he was looking for. The long steel blade glistened in the little light from his phone. His cold breath wrapped around the handle of the hunting knife when he brought it close to his face. The fuck you intend to do with that? Get answers. He started towards the figure. I jogged ahead of him and cut him off. Again, our eyes met, and I no longer saw the hesitance of a rational mind. The uncontrolled madness had returned. Out of my way. What are you going to do with that knife? Get out of my way. He stepped around me and continued towards the figure. I didn't attempt to stop him again. The guy's head rolled from his right to his left when Bryce stood over him. It looked to be a mindless maneuver, but it was the first we had seen a move since Bryce hit him with a bat. I'll give you one chance to save yourself. Bryce brandished the knife just above his head. Explain to me in three sentences or less how this isn't your fault and why I shouldn't gut you right here. The guy's chest expanded and contracted below his sweater. Aside from his breathing, there was no other movement. Bryce's patience was gone. He wasted no time. He dropped to a knee and plunged the weapon into the figure's thigh. The legs shot out and stayed like that, stiffened and flexed. It spasmed momentarily, then stopped. It remained rigid in the air for a while longer before slowly lowering back down to the ground. Bryce jerked the knife out of one thigh and slammed it into the other. That leg responded the same way. There was no cry of pain. There wasn't so much as a little twitch from the upper body. After Bryce pulled the knife out, the guy started to laugh. Not the deep, mature sound of a young man, but a high-pitched laugh that sounded almost like a shriek. It was the sound of unrelenting and endless joy. The sound was shrill and piercing. It cut into the crisp night air, and was so loud I thought it may make it all the way back to the houses and wake the neighbors up. Bryce was so startled he stumbled back over. He crawled away from the body, digging his fingers into the cool earth while he scrambled back up to his feet. As if he intended to mimic him, the hooded figure jumped up to its feet and tensed in a lunge position. He held his arms out, his wrists shaking violently. He tilted in neither direction, stopping and locking in on Bryce and then myself. He looked bonier than he was when he last stood on our parents' porch. I clenched my bat and ran up beside Bryce, who was feeling along the ground to find his own. We stood beside each other with our weapons raised, ready for what we thought would finally be the first aggressive move by whoever we had dragged out into the woods with us. Rather than attack, the figure sat back down. He did so carefully, keeping his head down so we could still not see his face. He returned to the exact position we had left him in originally, his neck relaxed and craned forward. The laughter slowly faded until dissipating altogether. 
Bryce and I didn't let up our guards. We glanced between each other, both unsure whether to attack or to retreat. The body became totally motionless again. Despite the fact that it was in the same position that we dragged it originally, there was still something so different about it. It was as if the body had changed, even more so than it had before. The sleeves draped well over the arms and shoulders, the upper body no longer pressed against the outside of the shirt, making the whole thing look two sizes too big. The ends of the pants stretched over his shoes. The bloodstains were around the holes where Bryce's knife had ripped through. Bryce acted again without thinking. He lunged forward, yelling and surely waking up whoever was still asleep back in the neighborhood. He brought the bat down with all his weight, aiming right for the hooded figure's head again. I couldn't help but close my eyes. No collision ever came. Bryce started to whimper like a little boy. He was on the ground, where he had been ripped down after the figure had caught his arm in front of his face. He had tossed him to the side and then held his arm. It twisted violently, like if he moved it anymore, he would rip Bryce's shoulder out of its socket. Finally, a voice emerged from the darkness under the hood. It's your turn now, big brother. It was not the voice of a young man. That voice belonged to a young girl. There was no mistaking it. With their free hand, the figure finally pulled their hood back. Nina's head rested above the shoulders. Her skin looked pale and cracked, but somehow still alive. <laughs> Nina! Nina's dead and in the ground. I plucked her bones from the ground when all of you were sleeping. Nina or at least the thing resembling Nina, squeezed Bryce's arm, and again he wailed into the night. He dropped the bat to the ground. She pulled the knife from her thigh and pressed it below his eye. Soon it will be your bones that I pluck from the ground. They'll line your family's graves together in a row. She dug the knife so far in that the blade disappeared altogether. She rolled his limp body over and turned towards me. The pale skin cracked and seemingly rotted off her face. One by one, all your bones will be plucked from the ground. She jumped to her feet and stood there, rocking back and forth, her eyes fixed on me. She brought her hand in front of her face and lifted three fingers up. Then, she was gone. She disappeared into the woods so swiftly my eyes couldn't keep up. The forest returned to quiet. Make no mistake, one day, it will return for me. In our fifth and final tale, we meet Michael 
held captive since childhood by the cruel Mr. Wynne, forced to paint for him. Good heavens, no! Oh, yes. But after he paints his mother into the background of one of his murals, Mr. Wynne punishes him fiercely. But why? That's what Michael wants to know. Written by John Vasser and performed with real human vocal cords, currently owned by Atticus Jackson, Jesse Cornett, Dan Zapula, Aaron Lillis, and Graham Rowett. This is Artist Unknown. I could hear Mr. Wynne walking down the hall. I knew he was mad as I sat in my dark room, listening to his footsteps echo along the corridor. His pace felt slower than normal, the type of pace he kept when he was upset, like he wanted all the artists in the confinement hall to know something was wrong. I'd done well on my last exhibit. I wasn't afraid of him stopping in at my door. It took me over three months to complete the mural, a record time that saved me a lot of canings. I still took a few lashes while crafting it, as he wanted it finished two weeks earlier, but I managed to avoid a great deal of them this round, just by showing him a quicker progression along the way. He had a whip in his hands now. I could hear him tapping it against the other artist's metal doors as he walked down the hall. It was an especially painful whip he held, one with seven tails and razor points at each end. Then, everything went quiet. His footsteps stopped. The hall rang silent. I heard the locks in my door shift. I stood up and backed into the corner of my cell and heard the door open on its metal hinges. The room was flooded with light, and the shape of Mr. Wynne stood black in the threshold. I squinted my eyes and bowed my head a little. Mr. Wynne looked like a dark silhouette in my doorframe as he let the whip dangle at his side with its metal claws glinting in the light. Hello, Michael. You're well rested? Yes, sir. The whip dangled like a set of chimes hanging on a perch with no winds. I was on my way to another room. Just wanted to have a chat with another artist. You see? I nodded. He lifted the whip into his palm, holding the midsection limp as if it were on display. I was on my way there just now, Michael. You see, I wanted to talk with another artist to get my eyes inside his head. To figure out what he's on about. But I stopped in here instead. Do you see? I nodded. Michael? Yes, sir. He paused for some time, dropping each tail out of his hand, letting it hang again near his side. Would you care to take a walk tonight? I bowed my head. Yes, sir. 
he stepped back, holding the whip behind his lower back. I walked out slowly into the bright hall with my head down. Mr. Wynn looked at me with his sharp eyes and clean face. His shoes were shining bright without a blemish to distract them. Let's go. He pointed the whip to the opposite end of the hall. I started walking. His black shoes were clicking on the white tiles, echoing down to the end of the long corridor. He paused a moment to tap another door with his whip and then continued walking. Michael, you've been with us for how many years now? Seven? I swallowed. Six and a half, sir. But that's quite a while for an artist. They're often traded faster than others, as you already know. Yes, sir. I wasn't sure when I bought you from your previous owner. I wasn't sure at all. I didn't like investing in unwise ventures. It was quite a pain to deal with. A tarnish, you might say, on a beautiful work. Yes, sir. He looked at me with his hands behind his back, almost smiling at me. But you wouldn't shame me like that, would you? Blemish my great work? Fail to produce as the others have before? No, sir. Of course not. Not you, Michael. Not you at all. We reached the end of the hall where an unseen guard buzzed the door open for us. Mr. Wynn extended his arm a little, telling me to go through. I stepped through the door and waited on the other side for him to join. He straightened his perfect jacket and rubbed one of his top buttons with his black leather glove. He then looked up at me and pointed toward the workshop. Why don't we have a glance in there? I nodded and bowed my head as we went into my workshop. He closed the door behind us and turned on the lights. The mural stood before us, covering a large portion of the room. It was just that he'd asked me to paint for him. An old city with happy people walking the streets, with only a hint of surrealism, and as he said, a mere style of expressionism without going mad. Mr. Wynn walked around the room with his arms behind his back, still holding the whip. He went up close to the painting and stared at it for some time. Then he turned over his shoulder to look at me. Well, Michael, what do you think? I walked over slowly, like a sheep. Is it okay? Mr. Wynn furled his brow as if I'd said something harsh. That's not what I asked, now is it? Don't make me repeat myself. It's nice. I think it looks nice. He pursed his lips and squinted up at the mural. He let a sigh out through his nose and dropped the whip on the ground beside him. He then pulled out a sleek knife from his belt and stepped closer to the painting, tapping the canvas with the side of the blade. 
looks nice. He thinks it looks nice. He then put the blade's handle in his fist and stabbed into the painting near the middle, holding the blade in it. I put my head down and closed my eyes. Look at me. I did. Mr. Wynne still held the knife in the picture as he swept his open hand over half of the painting, never crossing the line in the middle. You see, this is good right here. It's worth displaying. I looked at the portion he spoke of. Then he drew the knife all the way down the middle, splitting the canvas with ease. But this half... He put his knife away. This section over here is crap. He took a hold of the canvas with his gloved hands and ripped out the half he didn't like. I put my head down, trying not to watch. He started ripping it to pieces with a red bout of anger, seeping through his veins like an uncontrolled reaction. Then he turned around to look at me. What are you doing? Look! I said, look at me! I drew my eyes up at him. He rushed to where I stood, picking up the whip and throwing me down to the floor with his hands. He lifted the whip high in the air, bringing it down swift across my back, tearing flesh as he ripped it out of my skin. He threw the whip back into my flesh. Do you know how long this will set me back? He ripped it out. Didn't I make it clear what I wanted? Of course I did. Yes, sir. You have. Yes, I'm sorry. He cracked the whip into my back again. I felt it digging into my muscles, slicing right through them as he ripped it back out. Then he paused swaying the crimson whip in front of my face as I lay on the ground. He knelt down into a squat, moving the whip like a red, dripping pendulum. I want you to fix it. You'll start it all over again, this time, making it perfect. I lifted my head, with tears in my eyes and cracks in my clenched teeth. Do you understand... Yes, sir. He kept swaying the whip. (sighs) Very good. See to it, then. I felt a warm tear fall down the side of my face. Mr. Wynn stood up real fast and started to march away from me, his heels clicking on the tiled floors all the way outside. I was alone, bleeding in isolation without a soul to feel my pain. I reached out for a scrap of my canvas near my face. It was a woman's face, torn down the side, but I could still remember what she looked like. There was a tear in her eye and a story behind her actions. Her son was lost, 
stolen from her and taken to a camp far away to be a slave. She waited for him every day in this picture, hoping that he might find his way back to her. I dropped a scrap on the floor and laid my face on the cold tiles. Every inch of my back pulsed with ripe pain in my torn flesh. I woke up from the pain, screaming in my cell. The scabs on my back had made everything worse. I don't know why I kept dreaming of her. The lady who packed me a lunch the day I was taken. I can remember what she made for me on that day. Some rice triangles filled with stewed pork and salmon. Not to forget my usual hard-boiled egg, either. It was strange that morning I left for class like she knew something would happen. I can recall a picture of her in my mind, coming downstairs, seeing her on the porch midwinter, just looking out at the gray skies like she might have forgotten what they were. It snowed later that day, right when I got to school. Everyone was strange then, like the gray clouds that hung above us, ambiguous with a blurred premonition neither clear nor dark. I was eating one of my rice triangles when it happened. One of the older boys in the yard came over to me and asked me some questions about my artwork. I don't know if I'd seen him before that day. There was something familiar about him, or it was just that I've held this memory so long that he's now become a regular face in my life. I was foolish enough to show him a sketch I'd been working on for six months now. It was the most intricate piece I'd ever made up until then. I was so proud of it, proud to show it to anyone who cared to see. He told me he knew a man who would buy it from me and help to pay off my family's debts. Moving closer to the city had put more strain on them. I knew that, and I want to help. I loved my parents even if they got mad now and then. So he led me out of the schoolyard as the snow began to fall even more now. We went through a patch in the fence, me carrying my sketch pad and him helping me with my school bag. I feel foolish when this memory returns. Knowing better now, it makes me cringe. Like it should have been something I knew at the time. But I can't say that now, can I? I can only feel it souring in my gut. I saw her in my dream, standing on the porch as the clouds gathered above. She was in her kitchen apron this time, with a live salmon in her hands and a strand of chains hanging from the ceiling where the laundry should be. The winds don't always pull in this manner. Sometimes they drive great blizzards from the north and typhoons from the south. It doesn't mean anything, but it still hurts. Like nostalgia for something that never was. There is someone walking down the hall now. A guard. I can hear his boots clicking on the tile floors, heavy, with power. Not poised like Mr. Wynn. It was my back. That's what I have to tell them. They can't know I miss her. Or think of her. They can't know it was her in that picture. 
I was curled in the corner reaching for my back as if it were paining me when the door opened to my room. The lights came on and I rolled even more on the floor. What are you screaming about? Nothing, sir. Nothing. He came marching towards me, stepping his dark boots right in front of my nose. Get up. I slowly pushed myself off the floor. He kicked me under my ribs and threw me back down. Come on. I said let's get up. I pulled myself up again. This time he let me stand. It was Pat. I don't know his real name, but I called him that. Short for Patch, as he only had one eye in his face with a patch to cover the missing one. I thought we'd have a chat. What do you think? I put my head down. Yes, sir. He grabbed my arms and put them behind my back, leading me out of the room towards my studio. The painting was still there, half torn with the shreds laying on the ground like autumn leaves. Pat locked the door behind us and looked up into the corner where the security cameras were for a moment. He then marched toward me, taking out his baton, smacking it in his palm. He walked by me, whispering in my ear. Why the hell did you paint that? Do you think Wynn is a fool? He then smacked me in the ribs with his baton. He stopped pacing to straighten me back upright. I looked in his lone eye. It was dark green with a red fissure inside it and yellow stains coating the rest of it. He never told me how he got it, and I never asked. He smacked me on the thigh with his baton. I fell to the ground in reflex and looked up at him as he swung it again across my face. I hit the ground with blood rushing out of my nose. He knelt down in front of me, tapping the baton on the floor, and then placed a hand on my back, leaning closer to my ear. He started to tap his baton on the back of my hand that was laying close to my face. I've broken hands before. In the past. On accident, of course. I shook my head and grunted a little. He pushed harder on my scars. Don't grunt like that. If you know what's good for you, then take it. No. He smacked his baton near my face and leaned closer to my ear. The pain is tremendous, but the reward is freedom. No one cares to own an artist with broken hands. Come on, Michael. A few quick swings and it's done. Forever. I shook my head. No. No, I'll keep going. He touched the back of my hand with his baton. Going where, exactly? In the record of other artists unknown? I closed my eyes, squeezing out a tear. Not my heart. Please. 
I can't expect you to understand. He pushed the baton harder into the back of my hand. Do I understand? Of course. You're an artist. Pain is your life. Pain is your bread and butter. And in your case, pain is what gets you to breathe in the morning. Not my hand. Please. Not my hand. He pushed down an inch more before he brought his baton back up. You're all the same. Give it enough time and you'll be breaking your own hands. I wouldn't break my hands. I can't. Not yet. Not now. He pushed himself up and marched around the room, kicking the torn pieces of canvas along the way. Who was she? I looked up. He turned over his shoulder. In the painting. Who was she? An old girlfriend? I closed my eyes and then reopened them. Ellen. He laughed as he nodded his head. <laughs> sure. Sure she is. He marched back towards me and then walked right past me. Clean up your mess and get started on the next canvas. I'll be back in a few hours. I lay on the floor for some time, looking at the shreds of my work. I heard him exit and the door lock behind me. There was so much to do, and yet so little strength to do it with. I remember another artist from my first master's house who had his hands broken. He told me one night before it happened that happiness was a broken hand and a warm bullet for your head. Maybe that's the freedom Pat was speaking of. I can't be naive again, no matter how much pain it causes me. It's hard throwing a canvas away, putting the scraps of it down the furnace and watching all that hard work burn to dust. I saw her eyes looking up at me, sad, before the embers tore her apart. How did he know she was in the background? It's never a good thing when an artist gets too sentimental. Our masters don't like it. The last things they want to display in their galleries around the world are pieces that are too realistic or have a soul you must reckon with as you stare at her in your posh suits and fine linens. Stare at the soul of humanity that draws a line so fine between you and your own darkest fears. The natural world doesn't care if you were royalty two seconds before you were dragged into the filth of gutters and thrown in the laps of whores. Is that what humanity is? A comfort that's stripped from you in the cold of night? To remind you how narrow the gap is between you and the natural world. That's why he tore it up. If he saw her tearful eyes, then he must have felt something in that callous soul of his. Otherwise, he'd be happy to display it. And otherwise, he wouldn't have beat me. But there must be a way paint something he won't notice. To paint it in such a way that he's hypnotized into a trance that disallows him a moment to think and regain his hardened stance. 
to pass the visions beneath his own eyes and let the rest of the world see my message. Let them know I exist as something more than anonymous. I often wonder if I paint it well enough. Will she know it's done by my hand? Even if I never make it out of here, will she know? Will she know that woman standing on the porch in the distances with a tear in her eye is crying for a lost son that never returned from his daily routine? There has to be a way. I'll find it if it's the last thing I do in this place. I'd started work on the new canvas when Pat came into the studio. He tapped his baton on the doorframe, waiting for me to turn back and face him. Who was she? You all have one. I put my head down and looked at my palate. She's no one. Oh, well. I was trying to help you out. I started mixing the colors on the palette, not thinking of what I was doing, but distracting myself from the fear rising in my chest. There was a young girl in here a few years ago who told me. It was her father who'd sold her off. And to think, she didn't know. All those years, she thought the man was looking for her, painting him on her canvas, blending him in the background. But Wynne knew. He always knows. It was no one. Pat hit his baton hard on the wall and then smiled at me. It was quick for her. Just like that, and it was over. She was free. I set the pallet down on my table where all the brushes were. Pat tapped the door with his baton like a rhythmic clock. Oh, more pain then. I put my head down and walked towards him. He smiled at me with his one eye squinting with pleasure. I've seen men like you before. Why don't you walk free and join the rest? See what you've been missing in the world outside. I shook my head. His smile faded as he stopped tapping on the wall. Then he raised the baton up and hit me across the face. I fell to the ground. I'm trying to help you, worthless piece of shit. What kind of life are you living in here? Go on. I spit out some blood. Don't spit on my floors. He kicked me to the side. I rolled over. He came closer to me and grabbed me by my collar, raising my head up. What is it, Michael? Why do you keep on like this? Let the art go. What kind of loyalty could you really have to it? Isn't this the reason you're here? Because you showed it off to the wrong guy, huh? I closed my eyes and felt the warm blood seeping through my gums. If I were you, I'd never paint again. Breaking my hands would be a blessing. So I'd have no excuse to ever pick up a brush again. 
He threw my face back down and stood up. I lay there breathing in and out, waiting for the next blow. He turned around to slam his baton into the wall. He started cursing loud, growling red with anger. I lay there, shutting my eyes down in wait of the next pain. Then the room went silent for a while. I could hear him breathing heavily. Then his boots marched over towards me, and I felt his hand go around my collar, pulling me up like an animal. I stood there before him. He straightened my jacket, refusing to look at me in the eye. Life isn't that bad on the other end. I've seen your kind before. They don't all take the bullet. Not all of them. I bowed my head. They want you in the learning center. I'm to take you there unless, of course, you piss me off so bad that I go mad with anger. Who knows what a guard might do to a frail artist's hand. If that were to happen... I stood quiet for some time, but my decision was already made. Take me to the learning center, please. He pursed his lips and drew in a deep breath. Then he opened the door and pointed his baton outside it. The learning center was dark, with one lone chair in the middle of the room. The only thing I ever learned from that seat was how to go inside my mind and find a nice place to hide for a while. Where was I now? Not in the learning center, but a cool spring with a crisp waterfall dropping over the cliff above me. It was cold on my skin and made me feel fresh. It was so clean that I could drink it without any kind of filter. I even saw a couple of fish swimming down the spring and a crayfish hiding in the crevice of some large rocks. It snapped its pincers at the fish as they passed by, but they were much too fast for the tiny lobster. Someone was speaking in the distance about a woman showing me pictures and telling me that some children were sold by their parents. I don't know what was said, though, as the little crayfish tried to snip at my toes. That little crayfish always tried to snip at my toes. What good would it do if you kept her a secret? The winds blew against the trees, catching all the fresh leaves in a redolent patter. What good would it be to keep her a secret? Sometimes I'd see a few deer in the woods. Not today, though. They didn't seem to be out. But when they came, they always drank from the stream, lapping up the water as they watched me from the bank. I was no harm to them. I wouldn't do anything mean to them. If they let me get close enough, I'd even pet one of them. Maybe I should bring some food with me next time in case I see them. And before that, I need to find out what deer like to eat. Why don't you just talk? 
the winds were blowing faster. It's not good for you in the long run. We won't penalize you for it. I wonder if a storm would come through while I was still in the water. For some reason, I don't mind storms. Getting wet and all of that. It's a wonderful experience, really. Feeling the natural world upon your skin and having the most fertile reminder of your own humanity. If it weren't for the rains, none of us would be here. She's hiding somewhere in here. I hope I don't find her anytime soon. It's better that way. It gives her a bit of privacy. There's no need to tell anyone where she is. Not that I know anymore. And then the clouds went dark. So dark that I couldn't see my own hands in front of me. And that was it. I was back in my own room with fresh cuts on my skin, lacerations and burn marks across my neck and down my chest. My skin was raw to the touch. I wonder what deer eat. Yes, I wonder. Pat slammed his baton at the end of my bed, waking me up. Come on. You pull asleep like that again, and I won't need your permission to go nuts. I sat up quick and put my shirt on. Pat stopped me before I went outside and looked down at my feet. They were cold all of a sudden. Then I realized I'd forgotten my socks and shoes. I nodded and went back to put them on. Pat waited for me at the door and then walked me to the studio. He opened the door and closed it behind me, telling me to get to work as he left. I wasted no time and went to my paints. I needed to paint today. There was so much I was feeling under the surface of my skin that needed to be washed on a canvas full of color. Yes, it was about to explode at the seams of my own brain if I didn't paint. I rubbed my hands and touched them gently with my fingers. How could I break you? My lifelines. My reason for being. The door opened behind me, and Pat walked in with a tray full of breakfast. He closed the door behind him and threw the dish on the table in the back. I walked over towards it and he grabbed me by my shirt, gritting his teeth at me, as if he were mad. I bet you'd like an extra egg today. You think you deserve it or something? Doing what you did last night. I didn't say anything. He jabbed me in the stomach, but not that hard. I know. Wynne isn't very happy. He's almost convinced that not even you know who she is. Then he threw me to the ground. Might be another session in the learning center, you know? 
I looked up at him from the floor. I'll be back to check on you. I nodded. He pursed his lips and walked back out. I dragged myself up from the ground and went over to the table, pulling the tray towards me on the floor. I opened the lid and saw two hard-boiled eggs inside. I closed it back quick so the cameras wouldn't see. There was only supposed to be one inside. I closed my eyes and felt them burn inside my sockets. I then got up with my food and went into the corner of the room where the cameras weren't able to see me. I ate my meal so fast that it hurt my stomach. Those eggs were delicious. Just what I needed for my strength right now. When I finished my meal, I put it to the side and went over to my paints. It was time now. Time to let it all out. That pressure that's been building inside. And right as I began, the trances started to take over and I lost myself in time. Like a snowball building in size as you roll it down a hill. That was it. There was no stopping it this time. I slept and woke again, ate my meals and painted. It all happened so fast I couldn't tell one day from the next. Until I stepped back from my painting and saw it for what it was. I laughed to myself when I finished. Laughed to the point of tears. Then I fell to the ground and huddled myself inside my knees. What have I done? There she was. Not in the background, but the main picture this time. Like a statue of the past. What had I done? I walked around the canvas the rest of that day, picking up my brushes, biting them with my teeth, and then picking up another, doing the same. This is it. This is bad. I went to my tray of food and put it up on the table near the paints. It was all automatic, like I'd been planning my own demise for some time, that everything I did was automatic. That was when I heard the door open and saw Pat at the door. He lowered his baton and left his mouth wide open as he shook his head. He looked at me with his lone eye full of misery and hate. He didn't say anything, though. We both knew it was too late for me. I huddled inside my dark room, listening to Mr. Wynn's footsteps coming down the hall. They failed to keep soft as they normally did. It was obvious at how mad he was. I was feeling so nervous that I ripped a piece of my shirt off and started twisting it together. The door opened, and I bowed my head. He stood dark in the bright threshold with the whip at his side. Ouch! I did as he instructed and followed him out into the studio. The piece of my shirt was gone by the time I heard the door shut. I don't even remember dropping it. I was so nervous, but I thought I might have seen a glimpse of it inside the door. 
Everything was automatic again, like I was an actor in a play I'd rehearsed time and time again. Mr. Wynn wasted no time shoving me to the ground. But this time, I fled. I backed away from his first whip. I don't know why. He was enraged and started to run towards me, throwing the whip wildly in the air. I rolled to the side, missing it again, and hit up against the table with all my paints. You're trying to challenge me, boy? And then he brought the whip down again. I moved to the side and quickly picked up a can of paint, tossing it in his face. He stood there with black running down his fine skin and across his silk clothes, with the whip dangling in his hands, shocked. I then saw the food tray I'd left on the table and all the paintbrushes I'd chewed to sharp points earlier that day. I picked one up and held the tray in front of me as Mr. Wynn lashed with the whip, catching the sides of my arms but missing my face. I plowed into him with all my might and took the sharp brush like a wild creature, automatic in nature, stabbing it up into his supple throat. He wheezed with a pinched scream that couldn't be spoken as he reached for the brush jutting into his neck. His red blood began to mix with the black paint, gathering like a pool on the white tile floors. I watched him, expecting him to rise back up, but eventually he stopped wheezing and his arms stopped flailing at his side. I couldn't breathe. I didn't know what had happened. My hands were red with blood and black with paint. I turned around to have a look at my mother painted there, larger than the statue of David on my canvas. I promised to find you one day. I know you never would have sold me. I closed my eyes, letting the clear blue tears fall from them into my stained hands. Then I felt her in my chest. It burned me like a pain I'd been suppressing for over a decade. Come back to me. It's time for you to return home, my child. I've been waiting for you. Looking for so many years. I opened my eyes and stood up, gazing at her picture. Then I reached down and took Mr. Wynn's knife from his side and rushed to the door. It was cracked open with the piece of shirt I'd twisted before he came to my room. Automatic, like I'd planned it for years without planning it. I opened the door and went outside, running down all the open corridors, bursting through a window in the learning center and climbing across the broken glass out into the open air. It must have been autumn with how crisp everything smelt. I hadn't felt nature in so many years that it was frozen in place for a moment. After a while, I ran through the woods and found myself at a barbed wire fence stretching high up into the air with vicious blades waiting to tear me limb from limb. I kept going down the fence, searching for a weak spot, anything to get me out of this prison. Then I saw an area atop the fence that had a break in the barbed wire that I knew I could slip past. I scaled it fast as I heard dogs barking in the field behind me. 
They were getting louder as I fell over to the other side. I could almost see them rushing in the dark through the chain-link fence. An image I'll always remember. I then followed a black road down to the main exit, which was blocked off with three guards holding rifles and bright flashlights in their hands. I went up around the road's bend, backing away from the scene, and then heard tires screeching behind me. I turned around, throwing my stained hands over my face as a pair of headlights blinded me in the night. It was over. They caught me. The lights dimmed and the van door opened. An older man stepped outside and looked at me from behind his door. He breathed heavy in the night, speaking to himself and shaking his head. Go on. Do it. Make the call. I'm already dead. He looked around a moment and then waved me over to his car. Get over here. I walked towards his van with my eyes on him. There was no point in putting my head down anymore. No point at all. He opened the side door in his van and turned back to me. I know what he does up there. I've seen it. One night when I was working late to clean all the halls. My eyes began to fill with tears. He took me by the shoulders and pushed me towards his van. Stay under that tarp back there, you hear me? That's the best I can do for you, son. I promise I'll do all I can, but please don't blame me for what happens, okay? I won't. If I say you snuck in without my knowledge. He paused to lick his lips. You'll forgive me, right? I forgive you. He clenched his teeth, grabbed my shoulders even more, and pushed me into his van. I crawled inside and hid underneath the tarp, moving a few of his tools aside. Then I heard the engine cracking back up and the van bumping down the unstable road. It was slow for some time until we stopped. I heard a tap on his window and then a pause. He rolled the hand-cranked window down. Yes, sir. I'll need to check your van before you can leave tonight. Nothing to hide in there? Just some tools, that's all. Then I heard the side door sliding open and saw the bright light shining outside the tarp. It lingered for a moment, and I felt Pat stepping up into the vehicle. He was moving some of the items around for a while, and then everything went quiet. I heard him step back out, felt the van shake, and listened to the door slam shut. Sorry about that. Just checking for safety's sake. You know how it is. Thieves are common these days, I guess. Uh... Pat tapped his car with his hand, speaking louder into the van now. You know, I used to be an artist. Yep. Up until the day I accidentally broke my hand. There was an awkward pause in the conversation. Then the driver (laughs) gave a fake laugh. (laughs) Oh, well. You have a nice night, sir. 
And make sure you take a hot shower when you get back, and make a few hard-boiled eggs if you can. You hear? Okay. Pat tapped the van, and the man rolled the windows back up. And after what seemed forever, I heard a metal gate screeching open and felt the van moving again. Togetherness, friendship, acceptance, all of that. A, uh, a happy ending, to be sure. It doesn't feel right, does it? <laughs> I don't even know who the hell I'm talking to. But yeah, I, I guess... This is it. I guess I'd better get back before they eat all the cheesecake. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit the nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.